Hey, what's up, guys? It's Rico here, CEO of Sourcefine Asia, co-host of the Made in China podcast, and the host of the Sourcefine Asia YouTube channel. Back here, back in Manila, back with another podcast. Um, this is part three, the final episode from this deep dive that we did with Brian Paration from Podigy Game. Um, again, you got to listen to part one and part two before you listen to part three, otherwise you're not going to understand what's going on. And there's a lot of information, a lot of backstory here, a lot of context that needs to be needs to be heard. Um, Prodigy Game is one of the fastest growing educational game softwares in the world at this stage. They just opened up an office in India, good offices in, in, in Canada. They've got offices in the States. It's uh, originally started up in Burlington, in in, in Ontario, and uh, one of the founders, Rohan Mahimkar, is one of my best friends. And I explained this in part one. So if you want to go back to part one and hear the rest of that intro, where I kind of explained the background behind our relationship, um, you can do that. So in part three, um, Brian basically broke down further the things that we learned from. Managing uh, the first production run, the second production run, and the the unique thing about the second production run was that not only and not even second, but I would say like third or fourth production run, the unique thing about that was now we'd had a situation where we were pr- producing a toy that already existed and then producing toys that we were designing simultaneously, and now the 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 goal here was to produce five toys that already existed and then four toys that they were designing simultaneously and then make simultaneously and then make sure that all of the productions were done at the right times making sure that the one the toys that were selling the fastest were shipped out when they needed to be shipped out working closer with the factory understanding more about the factory systems implementing QC yeah, more effectively because we're now reviewing, we have data, right? Like we've seen, we've had multiple inspections, multiple productions. We have more data in terms of the things that can go wrong, the specific issues with each toy that needed to be corrected or fixed. And then also just development and the side uh, from the design perspective because they changed a few things in the way they were um, tracking each model. Uh, the packaging changed how we coordinated all of that. So there was a lot of different things that happened um, around this time. And then, of course, we talked about Brian coming down to China for the first time, visiting all the suppliers that we're working with, and then also why they ended up deciding to you know, stop producing toys for, for a while and uh, focus the business in a different direction. Not that there was anything wrong with the toys, it was just a, an internal decision. They decided to focus resources in, in another part of the business, but Brian gives a good explanation as to uh, why that happened and what the, the thought process was behind that. I don't want to be a product of my environment. I want my environment to be a product of me. That's actually a funny way to put it too, or not funny, but that, like that's a a good way to kind of put all this too. Is like if there's ever something you don't specify, yeah, that's you just giving them permission to interpret and do whatever they want. Not that they're trying to abuse it. It's more like, well, if you didn't say so, I'm just going to do whatever is easiest, or because you didn't say so, like it's not really their fault for doing it wrong. So I never found it to be debilitating to put more specification than not putting specification. But at the same time, you have to keep in mind, like, you don't want to overdo it where you're like making them read. If you have too much details in your document, then they might overlook those details too, because like it'd be too much effort to be conscious about every single aspect of that product that you're trying to make. But what I suggest to do is put all the main things you want them to focus on that are important to you. Not necessarily, you know, like this has to be super, uh, this angle of this like arm has to be exactly this because PVC has some flex to it. So you should be able to accept some tolerance. But if you want to make sure that product is facing the right direction, make sure you have a clear picture of like what the final product is supposed to look like as opposed to saying, you know, this has to be in the box and that's it. So that was a lesson learned. We actually had to make a hard call on that toy being facing the wrong way in terms of, I mean, is it passable? Is 
like because effectively the toy's butt was facing the main front viewing window, <laughs> and so it seemed a little promiscuous to me at least. But uh, in the grand scheme of things, like the alternative was to spend delay shipping because it's like we're shipping at least two toys together. We're shipping two models together. And if we didn't ship it out, then all of our orders that we did, we again did the pre-order stuff. Then all of those would have been delayed by a few days if we had to take time to unpack all the toys and put them back in the right way. Also, we had to consider that the boxes might get damaged. So there's going to be a yield issue there. And so you can't have to weigh the pros and cons at that point to, you know, decide is it actually uh, show stopping or is it permissible and then just correct on the next run. Yeah, so we, when I talk about that, I talk about critical major and minor defects when you're doing like an AQL level two inspection. And I mean, I think that would be something that would be considered a minor defect because the like the buyers, the, the people who actually get the product are probably not going to notice that the, the toy is facing the wrong direction. Um, maybe some people will, but like for the most part, most people are not going to, they'll probably just think that's the way it's supposed to be. And yeah, exactly. But but then you know, for you as the as the as the buyer, as the designer, and stuff like that, like you know that it's a, it's a defect, but you have to weigh up: is this worth delaying? You know, the whole production and shipment of all the toys just to fix that, or can we you know fix it on the next round? Actually, um, so like sometimes if the paint pattern is a bit off, uh, think about whether if it's supposed to be exactly perfect or is it meant to look random. And if there are defects with the randomness, then actually that's effectively a custom paint job you resulted in. So like, for example, on one of our toys, we had dots painted at the bottom of the tail or whatever. And if they weren't actually perfect, they, it was actually, it did actually didn't look too bad because the dots were meant to be kind of random anyway. Uh-huh. So yeah, just, just keep that in mind, I guess. Yeah, so after that, that I think after production was done, we get this the QC done. Um, and once we kind of get the report back from SFA showing that what are the major defects, what are the carton count, pictures of what the cartons look like, are they packaged properly, are they labeled properly, we kind of review the report, see what the issues are, and then we kind of make a critical decision on whether the defects are permissible or not. Obviously, if there are critical defects in terms of the toys breaking, that's like a huge red flag. And then um, luckily, that hasn't really happened other than the first big hex batch we've received. Yeah. But uh, other than that, like we, we did pretty good in terms of passing our, or yeah, having our toys pass on the QC run. But I think it's because we've done so many QC tests before that point that we were pretty confident that it would pass. The last QC or the FRI final random inspection was just to... More of a formality at that stage because you've, you've inspected so, so much of the products that you're confident. Um, and then you just want to make sure that the packaging is done correctly and you know the master cartons are safe and yeah. you know that the rest of the production followed suit. And then you can also follow up on any defects that you did find in, in your previous inspections. Exactly. And also it's kind of like a due diligence factor for when if there are any recalls, uh, we can show that for this batch, we did do a random sample test mm-hmm. to see uh, what is a statistically significant amount of product we have to pull test to ensure that the safety yeah, ratings you know, are... So before we jump into like what happened after that with the other productions, it's just interesting because like during this time period, obviously our workflow with the factories evolving, we're becoming you know, more efficient with information, we're becoming more knowledgeable about the production process, more knowledgeable about the, the products and the defects and stuff like that. But at the same time, you know, the companies are both growing. So it's like in the first batch, it was me, you, Rohan, and Mike on calls all the time. And then it became like me, you, Rohan. And then it became me and you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because... Go ahead. No, I was going to say, because, yeah, like we, it's like... I think part of it is like an understanding of the process. It was Rohan, yep. I think, uh, trying to make sure all the processes or like all his interests were covered. And then once he understood that I was covering his interest, he was able to kind of ease off. Kind of like how uh, Mike saw that you were able to ask the right questions and handle the meetings properly too. And, you know, we're able to meet the, the meeting objectives well, consistently. Yeah. And, and then it also, in terms of the workflow for me, I mean, it transitioned like the first project, like that first six months. Uh, yeah, I think it's the first six, first three to four months. I was doing everything myself. Like I was communicating with the factories, I was communicating with you and all that stuff. And then I got my first interns about three, four months into it. 
So then that became, you know, them communicating with the factories, but I was still the one relaying all the information and reports. And then I think, you know, maybe six months in, I started to allow my team to, to send reports directly and, and emails and stuff. Yeah. And I got my, my first full time employee was about six months in Leo. And if you remember, yeah, him. I totally remember. Yeah. And then Leo is doing inspections and news. And then Leo is also involved in, you know, communicating with you guys directly. Um, and I think Leo was for the first, I would say, six months of 2016. No, to, to, yeah, 2016. And then Sunny came and Sunny took over from Leo. Mm-hmm. And then she was working on it um, till, you know, towards the end of the year. Imogen was assisting. And then we had the, like, I think Sunny was the first dedicated, like, Prodigy employee, right? Like, she was not employee, but she was the first person who was, like, kind of working on Prodigy, if not half of the day, but full, most of the day mm-hmm. uh, on a daily basis. Yep. Yeah. And- so it was just interesting to see the evolution um, between, like, what's going on with the factory, the mass productions, but also just our general workflow and, and how the communication was flowing. Yeah. So, so I, but yeah, to, to comment on that, I, uh, my, I was yep. kind of worried though that uh, we're getting less and less of your time uh, working on it as a primary, but the way you ran it was like, yeah. So at first it was kind of iffy because we didn't know how it was going to turn out, but um, seeing how <laughs> I'm serious, like that's, it's, it's a concern because it's like, it's the same reason yeah. why, uh, Rohan put me, was always on call with me too, cause he doesn't know how it will turn out. Right. Yeah. But then, uh, the more and more we saw how the things progressed and whenever issues came up and, um, like I, I, I just brought them up and flagged them, you responded appropriately and, uh, immediately. So it, it didn't make me feel like you're pushing us away from you in terms of like project, uh, ownership. It was more like. Um, you just need to multiply yourself out and do the do the higher thinking parts and allow the execution be done by other people who are capable as well. And the thing is, like even for me as a like as a as the as the owner this year of the company, I mean, I remember having this conversation with Mike. I remember having conversations with my friends, like in my mastermind and stuff, and being like, "Man, like I don't think I can handle simultaneously like trying to expand and and manage staff, and then also having to." read all the emails, proofread the emails, send the emails myself, send the reports myself. I was like, it's just, it was, it was, you know, getting to a stage where it was just too much uh, pressure, like, and taking away too much time while spending so much time creating reports and things like that. Um, and, you know, I had this realization, I don't know if it was in my mastermind or if it was one of my, my mentors who told me, but he just asked me like, what, what is the most important thing to your clients? Is it, you know, getting a perfect report that has no grammatical errors and, you know, is written by somebody whose first language is English or is it getting a report that they understand quickly, you know, and that's accurate. And I was like, mm-hmm. I think people getting reports and getting information, my client, the most important thing to my clients is getting reports and getting information quickly, even if there's going to be some gram- grammatical errors because it's written by somebody who's, you know, who's, first language is Mandarin or Cantonese. Um, and then for me, it was yeah. just like making sure that I review those reports before they, they go out. But um, I'm not necessarily the one creating them and sending them, which was which yeah. was very important. Well, that's another thing I, I saw that you did too, to make sure that communication was smooth was like, I would explain something uh, with you. And uh, I think it was Imogen at the time too, uh, which was later in the production uh, and later in like our other productions where I'd explain something. Imogen would get most of it, but there's some like Western ways of saying things and um, such where you kind of explained it to her again afterwards and made sure she understood it to such that she can propagate or, you know, yeah, talk become, about that subject. To I'll, become an, I'll become an expert at uh, translating Western idioms. English to English. <laughs> into <laughs> Chinese English, you know. Western yeah, exactly. Because it's just, yeah, there's just, um, I find that if you, like, if you, you have to simplify your language a lot when, when you're talking to people in China. Um, and then there's just certain ways of phrasing sentences that I notice like when I, would, when I have customers, even like sometimes when we hop on a call and you know, I have a client from the US and, and you know, he's talking to me and the team. And I just know like you'll, they'll say something and I, like, I know immediately like, no one understood that except me. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm just like, okay, hold on one second. Let me... Uh, let me let me paraphrase that in a way that they'll understand. <laughs> yeah, oh, that's funny. 
Uh, actually, how's your Chinese now? Because um, I remember you're pretty fluent. Uh, at least it sounded fluent it's to me. Pretty, but uh, ha- pretty, have you pretty much, pretty much the same? If if not if not a little bit worse, because like <laughs> my life my life has become so uh, sanitized of having to speak Mandarin on a daily basis. Like I you know I I live in that that western part of the city, which I, I never had a chance to take you to. But if you come back to Guangzhou, you should check it out. So it's like. Man, like the restaurants I go to, a Western restaurants. I go to the office. My staff speaks English. My clients all speak English. Like I'm nice. rarely using Chinese on a daily basis, so um, I don't really get a chance to to practice it. It's not yeah. it's not an excuse, but it's just it's just the reality. Sure, um, but so, so yeah, but like as a business uh, for, or as a personal side, like that's mm-hmm. kind of unfortunate. But from a business side, I think that's kind of cool because then, like, you can again like allow more parallel. Things happening, you can communicate more effectively and faster um, to make sure you get the right things done, such that the Western customers are, especially us, like for us, it was just felt easy and seamless, more easy and seamless. Like all the reports were done already in English. Yeah. Um, it seems, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's obviously the number one requirement for anybody that works with me is like they need to be, their reading and writing needs to be really good. And also, uh, speaking, I can deal with, but at least comprehension, like if I speak to them or if, you know, a client sends a voice message or something on WeChat, like they should be able to, you know, get 80% of it. And then the rest of it, they can ask me to, to clarify or they can ask Imogen to clarify. So, um, yeah, that's, that's, you know, kind of a big point for us. Uh, but yeah, no, it's, it's just really important with, with this kind of stuff is like, could you communicating with Chinese factories and, and Western clients, especially with design? Like, I mean, they need to be able to understand some of the technical terms that are written in English and they need to be able to translate those technical technical terms from Chinese into English. So yeah. that's but it goes it's but it's beyond that too because yep. like sometimes we use words that are not even technical but it's like western yep. specific like oh man there's that little like bump thing <laughs> or like there's that little doot yeah. <laughs> and then you're like oh yeah yeah I see that doot and then you're like oh yeah yeah and then you can explain that by pointing physically to them exactly what I'm referring to because yep. uh, our call was remote or something yeah <laughs> um, or maybe we just clicked <laughs> yeah no maybe we just clicked but no no it is it is that like even just west like idiots Ideasms, like if I say, well, now my staff, like for example, Imogen is is familiar with the stuff, but like if we started a call and you said, "How's it going?" Right? Um, I think the first thought from my team at the time would be like, "You mean like how's the mass production going?" Like you know what I mean? It wouldn't be <laughs> they wouldn't understand that it's, yeah. <laughs> it's just like, "Hey, what's up?" You know, how's, how's everything? You know, so <laughs> it's like things like l- little things like that. But I've I've started to notice like. Um, it's funny with Imogen, I've started to notice like she's picked up on certain clients, uh, the way certain clients speak. So I have one customer from Ireland and um, he says this a lot like, because he's actually he's kind of like a buyer. He sells to, he's, he's like a wholesaler to other clients. So he buys from us and he sells to other people. Um, so he'll say something like, you know, I'll chase my client for this information because we'll be like, hey, we need the packaging design or we need the logo or whatever. And he's like, well, I'll, ch- I'll chase my client for this information. And I noticed that Imogen started saying, I'll chase, I'll chase. He's like, I'll chase the factory. I'll chase. Like, <laughs> <laughs> it's so cute. <laughs> it's just like, I, you know, it's fascinating to see that happening. It's like, because she's been working with me for such a long time, she's picked up on things that I say. And then she's also picked up on things that, uh, that, clients, that clients say. Which is good yeah, because that's then so it, cool. it's she sounds more westernized when she communicates with with people. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, that's so cool. I'm so, I'm so proud of her. Um, so okay, so that first batch was done, and then you know you have the Christmas sales, which I think went really well, if I remember correctly. Yeah, um, yeah. The kids like it's like cocaine for kids, you know, <laughs> like they just want them. Yeah. So seeing the success of that, we obviously do want to overstock ourselves on the new set of toys because at the same time we didn't know if people would just want to buy one toy or if they're if they're buying one, would they be like would they like to buy more than one toy and such mm-hmm. like and stuff like that? So uh, uh, that was kind of like another thing where we're kind of just sampling out the market. So after that, we were like, okay, we're ready to pull the trigger on another batch. But that kind of had, I think we did that again over Chinese New Year again, right? Yeah, I think you did. I think there was a, I think there was a reorder of the pre-existing, um, the ones that we'd already done. So the big hacks and then the four other ones. Um, but I don't think you ordered, like you ordered different quantities for each one. Because I remember like yeah. Arcturus was like a, the, the most popular, which I called. 
I called that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> He's your boy. And yeah, so he, uh, I think you ordered a little bit more of him and then, you know, another one and then like Meng's Mischief or whatever. And then like the two other ones were lower quantities. Yeah. But then at the same time, you said that you started working on new designs again. So. Yep. Yeah, yeah exactly. So um, we because uh, we felt like it was a seasonal, like yearly thing um, every year. We should have a new product coming out. So this was uh, this was we, 2017, by the way, just so people can keep with the timeline. yeah they're keeping track. <laughs> um, so yeah, we were like, um, let's start a new, let's rinse and repeat that whole process. Um, let's see if we can kind of expand that um, average uh, revenue per customer number. Uh, and so we kind of started developing a like. I guess at least internally, we kind of had a couple issues because every time we wanted to do something with toys, it was always like uh, all hands on deck for toys, and then that kind of just took away resources from the game side, which was um, kind of contentious because then they kind of have to replan their featured like pipeline out and everything like that. So it was kind of disruptive from that end. But uh, this time around, we kind of mapped out how long it'll take to make the whole series again, and I requested the time this time for their. 2D artists and game designers to figure out how they'll fit into the game, etc. And then everything kind of happened very similarly, but I think it was a bit more expedited. It took even less time this time around because um, I think we already understood the the circumstances under which we want to build these toys. We did actually get a bit more ambitious, though, in terms of uh, we want to include a bit more gradient paintings. But ultimately, after we negotiated on pricing, the gradient paintings took a bit too much in terms of cost. So we kind of decided to ease back and so, like swap it back to like hard edge painting. Yep. Yeah. So, I mean, I don't have too much to comment on that in terms of anything different that happened. Yeah, not that I can think of. Like we still had similar back and forth in terms of model um, development and then they made the molds. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. I, I think it did take a bit less time to make. It did, it did, but something that happened around this time. So again, just with regards to like relationship building with factories and stuff like that, um, the, the factory Nancy came to us and said, "Hey, you know, like, you know, we've been we lost money on two orders with Big Hex, and you know, we want to increase the per unit cost of all of the products." <laughs> so I think. I don't remember what it was, but I think they tried. They wanted to increase the pre-order cost by like thirty percent or something. Was it? Was it? Yeah. Right. 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 Yeah. Because yeah. uh, also at the time we had um, the product cost of uh, plastic went up because mm-hmm. there's a new tax. Uh, it was twenty percent, I think, all across. All across the board. Yeah. Uh, like even cardboard went up. Yeah. Yeah. So so there was that, and then what we did was we basically went back to the factories that we uh, we communicated with like a year prior. And you know, gave them the the product line, sent oh, sent yeah. out some samples, um, and then we came back to Nancy with like five quotes that were lower than <laughs> lower than our actual yeah. product cost. I think in the end, we didn't want to like we didn't want to push them too too far down. But I think in the end, we ended up like um, I think we ended up getting lower unit costs on some of the products, and then some of the other ones we we kept them as is. Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Which felt like a win, but you know, <laughs> like, the prices stayed the same. Yeah. Yeah. So, in terms of development, I totally remember uh, that happening. Uh, the back and forth was was kind of um, putting the relationship a bit tense because uh, it's kind of like the whole like, I, do I really trust that did go up by thirty percent? Like, is that real? Yeah. And then you actually were. Uh, were kind of vouching for them too, which is understandable. Yeah, there, because you're there definitely maintain the relationship. There definitely was an increase in in raw material costs and stuff. But then going back to them, we're like, look, like you're you are already charging us higher than you know most factories would charge for the same product. So <laughs> you can then yeah. So yeah, I, I totally remember what I was going to yeah. say now. So um, it was because the uh, they're saying the counter to us saying like, well, you can go ahead with them. The other ones, but their quality won't be as good as ours, and yep. like that's why the price is much higher because we're like we're putting a lot more time and effort into making sure it meets your standards. Yeah, which I, I remember, I know, and we, you know, we agreed that you know we don't want to change factories. Like you know, we know that their team, um, their team was really good at what they do, um, and and that's why we were like, okay, look, we'll come down and we'll keep some of the pricing the same. But I remember, <laughs> I remember literally like 
you know, because I think I brought in Mike to help around that time because I think I was traveling. Um, and I, I remember Mike was like, we had, we had a group chat with Nancy and we were, you know, Mike was sending me- messages to Nancy being like, look, like these are the prices that we have. Like <laughs> we can't, like we, you, you just can't increase the premium cost. And Nancy's like, you know, dot, dot, dot. Like you can, because in, in, in WeChat it says typing and then she'd like disappear and be like, okay, look, I got to talk to my boss and get back to you guys. Um, and yeah, it, things worked out in the end, but it was definitely very tense. I, I even I remember going to the factory at some stage, and uh, just like sitting down with Nancy, and like <laughs> Nancy's very like vocal and loud, <laughs> so she'd just be like, "Oh my god, uh, you know, come on, come on, work with me!" Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I remember that. Like, very, oh, this is very yeah. stressful, Rico. Very stressful. You won. Yeah, I remember too. Like, uh, you had me on the line. <laughs> Yeah, like uh, one time you had me on the line. I can hear like, you had to go in the hallway to, <laughs> to chat it out to see like what we can do or where um, are some conditions we can waive for. Yeah, yeah, those, yeah, and, and those are good. Even times. that with them is like okay. Then they were asking about certain painting processes if we're willing to change uh, certain things. I think with with Flora Fox they wanted less dots and you know stuff like that. Like so yeah. so there was like a little bit of back and forth there it's a little bit of give and take but i think overall it was a, it was a win for us and that's the thing is like again going back to to you know due diligence even if you're working with a factory and you're happy with the relationship like you should have backup options because then you can you can leverage um, those backup options in a situation like this. Yeah. Um, I, I mean i don't know if uh, it's okay to skip forward to when we designed um, the dragon sure uh, like there's that one feature we had on the dragons where I think I was trying to figure out the unit cost of each or whatever. Or like I said, all right, well, how much would it cost if I remove this? And then they're like, oh, it was so-and-so price. And then I was like, all right, well, um, how about the, if we remove this one too now? And then they're like, oh, it's so-and-so price, a bit cheaper. And I was like, oh, actually, we really want the first feature back. So they put it back in and they bumped up the price back to the original as if we removed something, but it's the same price as the original <laughs> one, if that... I hope that made sense, but like they effectively gave us one less features for the same mm-hmm. price. And so like that kind of threw my trust again at that point in terms of like, what does it even mean? Like, what are these prices? I don't understand it. And then it kind of uh, made me have to reevaluate how all these per unit prices worked. And at the end, we kind of uh, settled on figuring out, does this number, does this dollar amount make sense for us? Yep. Um, in terms of selling this product, so, and then we're like, okay, fine. So, and that's the thing. Like a lot of times, there isn't as much thought process into pricing um, with these factories. It's more like, okay, um, what is industry standard? How much are we going to spend on raw materials and mass production? And then, you know, what is you know a, a decent markup that we can put on top of? This? So, like when you start to try to get very granular and try to figure out like why this is more expensive and that's more expensive, sometimes it doesn't make sense. Um, and that's, that's yeah. just the way it is. Like they'll have rough ideas of how how much certain things cost, certain paint processes, or um, yeah, certain. I think the most expensive thing was the paint paint processes and, and how that's how that's done. But you know, it's not like they're following it to a T. You know, it's 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 a little bit yeah. it's a little bit up and down with that. So you know, it's good to have a rough idea, but ultimately it's going to come down to like, does it make sense for you uh, cost wise, and then also. You know, do you, you want to maintain the relationship with the factory, and do you feel like the factory is yeah. trying to take advantage? I, I never really felt like they were trying to take advantage of us. It's more of like they want to make sure that they're still profitable, yep. but also, um, yeah, they can deliver the quality we want. Exactly. Um, yeah. The, the the thing is, yeah, for me at least, from our end, it would be nice if we were able to figure it out together. Like again, like I, I did mention, like I don't mind if they state what their profit margin they want to maintain is, and then we figure out the rest together. Because obviously, when I look at prices on Alibaba and how much plastic cost, that's like the price I could get. But I'm sure they could probably get even cheaper yep. amount, uh, cheaper cost because they can buy in bigger bulk, etc. So, um, so anyway, so there's a lot of unknowns in terms of me being able to figure out how they price things out. So I, I eventually, didn't it wasn't really worth it as long as we're paying an amount that we're comfortable with in terms of how much we're able to, in terms of our profit margins, we're able to. At least make something out of it, then, then that's a success for me. But uh, if, if we were to make like millions of these, and like the cost that one cent translates to like ten thousand, a hundred thousand dollar difference, then I think that's when I'd 
really kind of hone down on exactly what's happening. Yeah. So, but but I think, but yeah, sorry, but I think at, at that point they would be more willing to do that if that's that if your business is very high valued, then they probably would be willing to. Well, yeah, I mean, they went through an entire innovation process because of Disney. Like <laughs> they they yeah, their true. entire factory and and changed. Um, their production processes because they wanted to get certified by Disney. So, you know, um, definitely more willing to 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 do things if if you're coming in with those kind of numbers. Yeah, so that's a good thing to keep in mind. Like the the smaller the the volume, the um, you have to keep in mind like how much work do they have to do to readjust to your expectations to you know make your small order versus like if you make a big order, then it's more worthwhile for them to do it. So. Keep in mind when you when you do want to go with a certain company. Actually, it, it ties into um, how big their business is too. Because if your order is small, but the company is small, then they obviously might be willing to um, make those changes to because the scale that which they work with, it's easier for them to meet that kind of ad hoc request. Yeah. Um, or like yeah. So 2017, quite a few changes with uh, the factory itself, and then also with us. So like. I hired Jean, who was the full time. She, yeah, the only her hundred percent of her job was just working on Prodigy stuff. Because of course, at this stage, we're producing five do- five toys reorder, and then also another four toys that are you know in the process of being created for the first time. So we needed we needed that amount of man hours, and then also her being able to, on the drop of a dime, head to to Shenzhen to the factory and and things like that. Um, with you guys, I think you also hired Amar. Yeah, yeah. Um, Amir, 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 and then and then it changed from you know me and you on calls to me, you and Jean, and then me, you, Jean, and Amir. Um, yeah, you know. So and then eventually, I think we would have gotten to a stage where it was just Amir and Jean if it continued. Yep. But um, <laughs> and then of course, even the factory itself. They were, like I said, they were renovating. They renovated because of Disney. Became way more modern, like that. Now they had an elevator. You know, they had like really a really modern office space. They opened up a second production space as well, so they could they could increase their mass production. But another major thing that happened with them, which kind of affected our production, was um, they joined a, a conglomerate, conglomerate of of yeah. other factories. So I think it ended up being like. 20 or 30 factories that are under one umbrella. And the reason why they did that is because they wanted to be listed on the Chinese stock exchange. Um, but then that also came with a whole host of issues because now instead of you know Nancy being able to just talk to her CEO or, or general manager or chairman, as they, as they call it, now it was like, well, the chairman of this company has to then report to the board of the, the conglomerate and get approval for certain things. So one major thing for us is like before we were able to monitor the paint steps and you know the and take video and pictures of that, um, and and the you know the most of the mass production steps. But now we weren't allowed to do that because there was this blanket no recording of mass production process uh, rule that was given out by the conglomerate allegedly. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, allegedly, but like, yeah, that was uh, that was an interesting, interesting change that happened. That kind of was another point of point of contentious contentiousness with the uh, with the factory, but you know, we still were able to to make it work. And I think the solution that we came up with is that we were allowed to view them during the paint process, and we could take pictures, but we couldn't take video. Yeah, yeah, and uh, yeah. So I, I think the rest of that production went the same, similar. To the other ones, um, like because we did do another order of, uh, like I mentioned, we did do another order of the original epics, the five epics. Yeah. Earlier that year, um, we took delivery. Uh, everything was better this time, um, but then uh, when it came to delivering uh, in October timeframe, we did like the kind of validation process of the twenty samples, twenty or the sorry, it was the fifty samples of each new dragon. Epic. Uh, I actually decided to fly down to China just to check out the factory uh, and also minimize the amount of time it took to validate the samples that we had um, because I can do all four of them at the same time. You don't have to wait for them to uh, be shipped over. Um, and also, 
uh, you can, we can, I can leverage the help of um, SF8's team and um, use the facilities at the factory, et cetera. And it's also pretty cool to visit the factory, see what it's about. Um, it's also nice to put a face to all the people I've been working with. Um, so I, I, I do recommend if you, if you have the opportunity to do it and it's within your budget to do so, because uh, it does strengthen uh, the uh, bonds and, you know, it's, it's uh, makes you respect and makes you have a better understanding of what's happening when you do refer to certain things. So, so I, you know, I guess kind of coming towards the end of the of the podcast, like, so what was your because you'd been working remotely with China for like two and a half years at that stage? Yeah, well, and I have never been to the factory, any of the yeah. factories and stuff. Yeah. So, what was your experience like of coming to China and and you know seeing the factory, seeing where your stuff is actually made, meeting Tiger, Nancy, meeting um, Imogen? Yeah, it's. It was definitely eye-opening in terms of like you have an idea of what you think it is, and then you see what it actually is. And so it's like effectively what if you don't if you're not there if you don't have the opportunity to go there, you are obviously applying what you know about the world as it is from a Western perspective, and assume that that's how it is, or whatever you've seen on TV, and you use your best guess to kind of like quilt together an image of what's happening, but. When you actually go there, you can see like it's like real people in terms of like you talk to the people there and you're like, yeah, I could actually be friends with that person there and stuff like that. And then it actually helps you humanize the whole process, too, in terms of like when there's uh, when you pay for overtime, you're actually able to connect to how you're affecting the office, the factory and such to that degree. You also um, it gives more personality to all the connections or all the um, what's it called? interactions you had and communication you had with all parties like SFA and, you know, the factory, Nancy, especially. But if I had to think about it, if it wasn't for us to save time, I feel like I would have just as a rich experience doing it remotely as well. Um, Especially if you can do voice calls, video calls and such. Like, I think it definitely helps you humanize the whole process. But I do think that working it remotely is just as effective from a Mm -hmm. business point of view. Um, I think that's the thing I try, I want to try to get away because I just want to encourage, like, don't be afraid that if you're working remote, that it's like not as effective. I think it's just as effective. It's just that when you're in person, it gives you maybe perhaps more confidence of what's actually happening is actually happening. Yep. But yeah, yeah. but as yeah, as my own testament, like the fact that I experienced the correspondence for two years, two and a half years, and then only after that I was able to see it in person and. I feel like it's just referring that the whole process was proper and was working properly. Then I feel like anyone who was to work in this fashion remotely should feel confident that things are getting done as if you were there in person. So two, two questions. Um, can you talk about where the company was when you started working on the toys and then where the company was at the end of the, the, the last production? In terms of scale and, and and size and you know progress and things like that, yeah, so like your company, I, obviously, yeah, so, yeah. So I'm not sure exactly how much of I'm supposed to say, but uh, uh, we when we started working on the epics initially, um, I think we were about twenty to fifty people by the time we launched the first epics. But ever since then, we've been kind of doubling our workforce year after year. And so we were able to, by the time we got to um, the end of December, we were around like 200 people. And it's actually quite um, intimidating because uh, like for me, at least from having to produce a product that generates revenue for the company, it's kind of nerve wracking because you want to make sure you have enough revenue to support the company. But it's... Most of our income was coming from actually the software side, especially there's a um, higher margin there considering that it's, you're selling software. So, so in terms of um, growing the team as well uh, from a toy side, considering that we had multiple projects going on like the nine toys, we'd obviously want to hire more people to support that project such that we can keep developing new things and support existing uh, things. Um, I don't know what else I could say to that. Um, like we grew a lot. Uh, I <laughs> don't want to comment too much about revenue. 
Uh, what kind of? Yeah, I mean, what you, kind of you, don't, you don't have to talk about it. No, I just wanted to give some perspective on the growth, and then so at the end of that last production, um, you guys did an internal review and decided to not move forward with the toys anymore. Um, yeah, exactly. You just explain what happened with that. Yeah, so um, it's kind of uh, from a business point of view, I guess it had nothing to do with the production or any from anything from a project success point of view. I think from project point of view, we actually did very good. Uh, like we are pulling a profit from the toys. Uh, it's not like a huge margin, but I mean, it's pretty decent. It's comparable to standard products out there, I'd, I'd say. And um, but when we kind of calculate what percentage of our users are actually buying our toys, et cetera, and to make sure we want to get the, if we compare that to the amount of revenue want, we want to get per month, the amount of toys we would have to sell would ha- would be pretty ridiculous. So suppose if we want to sell like a million toys, uh, each toy is worth like $10, $15, um, or like we'd sell them for $10, $15. And uh, let me post out my trusty calculator. So for us to kind of get to where we want to with toys in terms of revenue, we'd have to um, effectively sell uh, 5,300 uh, toys per day. Like at that point, we were selling 600 per day. So that's like almost 10 times the volume. Mm-hmm. And um, and even then, by the time we get to that volume in terms of revenue, we'd have to effectively, like the amount of revenue or the profit margin we'd be getting there would be still much smaller than we would with the software only side. So even if we were to sell these toys just digitally, like we'd probably be making a better profit from that point of view versus selling just the toy itself. Um, but on top of just the ridiculous uh, kind of scale we had to scale up to, uh, we're kind of thinking if we want to double down on our main focus, which is just an educational game company, we want to make sure that we are the best education game that's fun and engaging for kids. Um, And if we start to kind of distract ourselves or um, focus too much on the toy side, and especially if our sprints that had to accommodate our toy production, um, then our return from the game side might not be as high as we'd like to. So it's kind of like uh, how we ultimately decide like toys were good and they are successful. They actually, we're still selling them right now. We're still selling through our stock right now. it's just that the magnitude at which we want to sell at doesn't seem to like the numbers work out in a way that we can meet. Yeah. So, I mean, it's kind of sad, but at the same time, I think it was a good decision because um, we're able to make sure we're giving more effort towards our main mission, which is again, make sure kids love learning math. I said, instead of saying learning math, I said laugh. <laughs> so, anyway, um, yeah, I think that's pretty much all I had to say about that. Can you break down like, also, so you talked about you know where your company was at the time, but and then where it, where it was towards the end of the production. Can you break down like because you were there at the beginning of of our company, and then obviously two and a half years later. So, um, can you talk about the growth that you saw with us? Oh, um, for sure. So, I mean, when we first started working out, we kind of went through that through that through this uh, podcast, but it was just uh, even. When we first talked to you guys, it was, our company was small as well, but it was just you and Mike, and we didn't really know like uh, if you guys had any customers or how your time would be spent. Um, I think but we then, had one one other potential client at the time. So like after you guys signed on, like the other client also signed on like shortly afterwards. But um, awesome. you were definitely the first. Yeah. And then a lot of like growing pains. I remember too, like your terms of processes, um, you had ideas in mind or like um, you'd run things and then we kind of had retrospectives being used, figure out like maybe things can be done this way. Because like my goal was to make sure that uh, like it was beneficial to me to make sure that I can give you good feedback such that um, it would serve me better because you're willing to take that kind of feedback and improve your business to kind of cater to how we ran our things. But as we went through all those things, I can see that you did take that feedback well and it did make our interactions be more smooth. Not that they weren't before, it's just we're making improvements to to make things more efficient. Um, But also when you hired more people, um, 
like the translator, I, f- I think translators were like one of the first ones you had in there, like um, for legal documents, right? Uh, yeah, I, I had my interns doing translations. These these are also my students when I was teaching English. So. Yeah. Oh, yeah. right. <laughs> yeah, nice. <laughs> yeah, so that's what I remember as uh, your first um, services that were not done by you, um, but someone else in your, you know, organization. And then, um, and then I saw that you started having more um, project managers. And I think you'd have these. Yeah, yeah. So then I'd have to start scheduling my meetings around you versus you scheduling around me because you're kind of um, juggling a lot of projects, which is fine because ultimately I just want to make sure that we had a good time to communicate. Like the times I which I had to communicate with you weren't ridiculous. So like everything worked out. Obviously, we agreed on times. It's not like you forced it on me just clarifying that out for the listeners um and then uh at one point you're telling me how you're dealing with like 13 um projects that simultaneously you told me how you had um that huge project i don't know i guess you had the podcast on it it was the whole uh um fidget spinner fidget spinner situation yeah yeah Yeah, that one was awesome man like that's great to hear that you're working on those kind of scale projects yeah, but like uh, even when I was working on my project, I'd be bouncing between different project uh, managers, which meant like you had more than one project manager. So it was good to know that you always had like a backup for the backups too. Uh, in my mind, I always felt like you're the primary, but obviously you had uh, other project managers who actually took care of the daily tasks. But then even those uh, PMs had their own backups in case they were um, out of the office. So um I think in terms of communication, though, if there did rely, if you did have to rely on the backup, on the PM's backup, I always felt like you always stepped up to make sure that there were no miscommunications there. Um, Because I feel like that PM might have lost some context that the other uh, primary PM would have had. But I I always trust, yeah, I was going to say, I always trusted that you're able to fill in the blanks for us. And I never felt like there was any like downtime or miscommunications happening there. Yeah, I mean, there's there's two parts to it. Um, actually, there's three parts to it. So the first part is ultimately at that stage, and even now to a certain extent, I am the one who's responsible. So I, I'm the one who knows overall what's going on with every project. Um, I guess now Imogen could also say that. In fact, Imogen probably knows better than me at this stage. But um, but like, uh, you know, at that stage, I was way more involved in the day-to-day of each project. So it's like if... If somebody is sick or they, for whatever, maybe they have vacation time or something like that, and then we have to have somebody else step up, it's like it's my, it was my responsibility to make sure that there, you know, any knowledge gaps that they had were, were plugged in. Um, the second thing I think is like making sure when you have, like, because of the, because I'm, I'm a fan of the four hour work week. So I've always thought about like making sure that everybody in the company has. Access to the same information, so there isn't too much of a you know a knowledge gap between each person, or at least even if they have to jump onto a project, they can kind of get up to speed relatively quickly. Mm-hmm. And then the third thing is actually, I mean, I took a lot of the processes from from you guys. I, I think you kind of mentioned that, but I actually took a lot of the processes from you guys early on. Like, um, basic, like one of the major things I would say is like the way we manage our Google Drive. Um, I kind of copied from. You know, I was using Google Drive, but then I kind of copied a little bit more of the structure from you guys. Nice. Um, and then, of course, I think it's important when you're starting a company, like your first clients are the ones who you need to take the most feedback from because you know they're the ones who are going to help you improve as quickly as possible, and you have to, you have to be able to do that. Um, you know, it's 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 just the perfect situation because you're testing out things, and then if you have ideas, they can they can give you feedback, and 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 if you take that on, then then you improve. Um, yeah, for sure. But yeah, I think. But just, uh, do you, do you, go ahead. Like, is there is there something you recently learned from one of your more recent um, customers that you've taken feedback from? Yeah, well, one thing we started doing last year. So, I mean, before we were using Asana for project management, mm-hmm. and then in recent times, we've uh, we've started to have our clients be a little bit more involved in the day to day projects. So, like, they're. One thing I had an issue with was that Asana, it's hard to do collaborations. Like you can't, it's it's difficult to bring in another company or another person and then give them limited access um, and, and them just access like their own project. So I, I shifted to Zoho projects last year 
And mm. what I like about Zoho is like I can literally just give you a login, and then that you log in, and you're, the only thing you see is your project. Um, nice. And even, and even within the project, I can pick and choose what tasks you see and what tasks you don't see. So that was like something we implemented last year. And some clients don't want to use it. Some clients do. Um, the clients that are more involved give us feedback in terms of you know how it works and 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 the communication and stuff like that. So that's that's probably the 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 one thing that we're dealing with right now is just getting um, you know the workflow correct with with the clients because. Part of the reason why I want to do that is it 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 takes away um, a little bit of the bottleneck in terms of a client sending me information and then me creating or sending you know my project manager information then them creating a task in Zoho projects mm-hmm. or somebody else. It's like well you know you can we give the framework and then the client can go in and just they can create their own tasks. So of course we're still creating tasks, we're still creating uh, managing the projects and stuff like that. But there's some clients who instead of them sending an email with you know five, six, seven different tasks that they want us to do, they can just go into Zoho and, and create the tasks and assign it to yeah. to their person directly, and then you know they can wait for updates from there. So like that's that's kind of like. The, yeah, I would say that's probably the main thing that we've been getting feedback on recently. That's awesome. I think that had been more pretty helpful for us because we used to do it just in a Google Doc where we write down what we were thinking and stuff. And then the, those documents got pretty long. But if it was like managed uh, in separate tasks, you can probably search them more easily too. Yeah, and then we still use we still use Google Docs. Um, we still have some, you know, like the one thing that Zoho is Zoho is good with. Like you can add comments on a task and that can become like a thread, which is good. But at the same time, if you just want to have like a daily update, which we do, um, we with with certain clients, we still have like a the master doc, which is just literally just notes. Like this is what mm-hmm. was done today. This is a bottleneck, and this is what we're doing tomorrow, kind of thing. Um, yeah, yeah. But then the actual tasks and assignments are put into into Zoho. Uh, with deadlines and and all that, so I think yeah, for sure. With us, I think the document that we were using was acting as both the notebook and then also you know you guys were setting setting tasks and, and action items. Um, and then what we would do in those situations is we take those action items and we put them into Asana. Mm-hmm. And now we've kind of tried to eliminate that. Like we just want the the tasks to be logged directly into into the project management software. So yeah, that's pretty cool, man. That's, well, it's good. Like it, that's good testament to you guys as well to show how you're willing to adapt um, to make processes better and more efficient for the customer. Because I think if if things are too difficult to to kind of go through and um, work with and it's tedious, then obviously you want it to be more work for the customer. So that's yeah, good. I'm, I'm proud of you. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's uh, thanks. Uh, yeah, but but you know, ultimately it comes down to like. How do we maximize? Um, how do we maximize the efficiency with each customer and maintain uh, maintain the same level of service for each client as we get more clients? Um, mm-hmm. So that's that's really what it is. And it's like if if it's still coming down to a situation where a client has to update one project man, one senior project management project manager, and then that project manager has to update the entire team. Or whoever's working on that project specifically, that's not sustainable. When you get to like, you know, seven, eight, nine different projects, and you're having to update those on a daily basis, at that stage, you kind of need your clients to be, you know, more involved in 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 creating tasks and things like that. And, yeah. and again, it's like it depends because some clients just don't want to use Zoho at all. They still want to just send emails, which is fine. Um, yeah. But you know, then, then it's like a balance. We have like maybe let's say thirty percent of our clients who are really adamant about just not, or just don't are not very tech savvy, um, and they just don't want to use any sort of software like that. And then we'll work with them through email and 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 uh, WeChat. And then we have you know sixty seventy percent of the clients who are happy to jump onto Zoho and and you know create tasks. And typically, those are the larger projects anyways because they usually have their own project management software as well internally so mm-hmm. um, they, they kind of understand the need for it um, so yeah I mean I, I you know and we just want to keep improving with that and pushing forward with, with with things like that and obviously continue to get feedback from from certain clients and see see how we can make things more efficient man and then yeah. I mean the other stuff that's happened is just that we've just created a lot of SOPs in the last 
in the last two to three years, just a lot of a lot of standard operating procedures constantly. <laughs> nice. Whatever. Yeah, well, um, something bad happens. <laughs> it's like we need an SOP for this. <laughs> yeah, or like a retrospective, like why? Who? Yep. Why is there no SOP for this? Yeah. Yep. Yep. That's cool, man. Um. So I mean, I uh, is there anything else? Um. I guess what are your final thoughts? Like dealing with China, you know, dealing with factories. Uh, I think you kind of already summarized it, but. Is there yeah. any well, piece of advice you wanna you wanna give anybody? Well, the dealing with factories I was mentioning before is more about like being in person. How it's not really different from uh, working remote, but especially working through you guys working remote. But um, if I had to say anything about working with China in general, I definitely am not afraid. After all I've been through, I'm definitely not afraid to work with them again. I think it's very beneficial to like cost wise. Like they, although like uh, the culture is a bit different. Like there are people at the end of the day. Like they. All want to make sure things get done properly. As long as you clarify what you want and are respectful to, you know, the conditions of proper business. Like obviously, you don't want to insult them with like low prices, etc., and um, such stuff like that. But from uh, like having gone through all of this, I sometimes every now and then I wonder. I keep thinking to myself, like, is there something I could probably make and start something for myself, like separately, mm. um, and manufacture something in China. Because I feel like it is knowing the process right now. I feel like it's very accessible to anyone if they have. Well, you you um, have you have a, a competitive advantage over somebody else because you spent two and a half years doing it. Um, so I that's mean, a fair you, point. <laughs> or, yeah. yeah, too. Yeah, <laughs> you, and and it was like a kind of like a low risk situation for you because it wasn't it wasn't like it was the company's money. So if you were to launch a product yourself, then you know you would be in a good position because. Um, you have that experience. You've you've kind of been allowed to play around in the in the sandbox without without that, uh, personal financial risk. So, yeah, that's a fair disclaimer. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> Just uh, putting that out there. But but like if I were to do it again, um, for my for myself, um, I literally wouldn't hesitate to make sure you're on it to help me out because, uh, like I said, it would expedite the process. If I think about the amount of hours I would have had to spend otherwise, um, as long as I have a job that can support me, like. And I can kind of fund if if I think of this project as an investment, then I feel like I should be able to fund part of my investments towards this. And I would think it's worth my time to make sure I get a quicker return um, by like using uh, your company and such. Like I I don't want to like I feel like I keep plugging you or whatever, but I, I <laughs> truly feel like this is how I would run it or how I would do it. Obviously, I like we'd have to figure out how you'd be involved. I'm not sure if it would be. I'm sure, like we have more experience this time, so I can probably ask you to send me like sources or like um, you probably have a list of sources you already vetted, so it'd probably be even easier than before. So, like I don't know, like that's pretty much how I'd feel about China right now. Like it's literally through the lens of working with you guys. That's awesome, man. Um, so, just a last question, I guess. Do you have any books or podcasts or? vlogs that you'd recommend people read? Like, can you name three? From uh, any subject point of view? like Any or, subject, it doesn't matter. So for sure, if you had to listen to a book, um, in terms of being scared of making decisions, etc., I think thinking in bets, making smart decisions when you don't have all the facts, it's uh, the author is Annie Duke. I listened to an audio, audio book about that, but the main point about that was how you might feel like when you make a decision and it doesn't work in your favor, uh, you feel like it was a bad decision and you regret and you kind of mull over it. But when you um, when you think about it as a bet, typically what you're really doing with decisions is you're making the best choice that you can with all the information you're given at hand. And so when you kind of reflect back on what the bad decision made, you really shouldn't feel too bad about it because you've as long as you made the right decision with all the facts that you had, then you effectively did the best you could. Um, the book probably explains it much better than me because I just gave you like a one minute summary for a six hour book. But um, mm-hmm. I definitely recommend that because it really helps you be more confident about making decisions. And it definitely helps being more data driven to kind of make those hard decisions. So um, that's one. Also, um, kind of along those lines, um, figure out. Uh, what you should measure 
Uh, so there's a book called Measuring What Matters, How Google, Bono, and the Gates Foundation Rocked the World with OKRs. Um, that's um, mainly a huge like shout out to OKRs and how well they work um, if they're structured right. Um, so if you're looking to OKRs, I recommend that book. Um, and then I think uh, one more. I don't know. Anything TED Talk too is pretty good. <laughs> That's uh, I think I'll leave it at that. Nice. Um, and then smallest thing you've done that bought you the best results when dealing with China. Smallest thing that I've done that eighty twenty principle. Oh, I see. Um, I could easily. It might not be a favorable answer, but uh, definitely staying up. Um, to kind of match the, their time zone on critical moments to make sure that the uh, return on communication or the delay in communication has been minimized. So um, if there's a condition where me and you know that might be a tough choice or tough call, or it has to be a decision that we have to make as a company, like Prodigy would have to make as a company, then um, it, it, it is definitely helpful for me to be up there um, with you to kind of make that decision in that moment so that we can feed back that answer to them to work on immediately because that would save like two, one, two days. And as we've negotiated, like it costs $1,000 to get that thousand to get that extra day or two of overtime. So I think, I think I would personally recommend doing that. But if you're, if you have employees that will have to execute that, it might be harder to convince them to do that. So if you are the one that's starting out the the project or it is your own project uh, and you're okay kind of making sure you match that time zone um, for those critical moments, then I think uh, that would be a, the most impactful thing I, I could recommend to do. Awesome, man. All right, man. I think uh, that's it. Thanks for, thanks for staying yeah. up. It's probably like what, four, almost four o'clock in the morning, that's it? Yeah, almost four, yeah. Yeah, no worries, man. It's, it's one of those things, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> just, to, just to add some context, we've been trying to record this podcast for a year or so. <laughs> yeah, yeah, been super busy. But um, I, I definitely think it was a good chat. I do enjoy this memory lane visit for me. Yeah. Um, also, just, I, I definitely... It's insane, kind of like what, 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 what we did in that time period, right? Yeah, for sure. It's like, uh, and we went through a lot, a lot of stressful moments. But like, since we worked it together, uh, it was much more bearable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. I'll let you. I'll let you go to sleep, um, and I'll just I'll sign off from the podcast. So, hey guys, thanks for listening. If you want to catch the show notes, some of the books that Brian mentioned, that's sourcefinasia.com slash Made in China. You're gonna reach out to me. That's podcast at sourcefinasia.com, and of course, check out the YouTube channel Source Find Asia um, for any of our latest videos. I think at this stage, we've got something like fifty videos up, including some of the the podcasts. And by the time this episode comes out. I should have like a ton of my videos from my time in the Philippines. So definitely check that out and see you guys next week. All right, guys. I know that the people who've listened to all three parts are my diehard fans. No, I'm joking. <laughs> no, I mean, I feel like uh, Brian, like this was, you know, it's a long, it's a long, you know, three, two and a half, three hours, but. I feel like the content is super important. It it is basically everything you'd need to know about creating an original design. It is not. It takes a long time. It's difficult. Sometimes you have to shift factories a bunch of times. You need help doing it. Um, there's gonna be mistakes. You have to be able to pivot in real time. Um, and then you learn from the, yeah. the productions and you keep it moving and you, you, you become better and you develop your relationship with your supplier yeah. further. Um, so I feel like that's the main takeaway you should take from, from this. And, and there's a lot of practical yeah. advice in these episodes. So, you know, people re- revisit them and take yeah. notes and, and really understand the value from them. Because like we, for me, yeah. this being the first client that we had and the lessons that I learned, yeah. not just from the manufacturing space, but also from, you know, man- managing clients. Like yeah. it was really oh. nice to go back and see, you know, all the stuff that I did at the beginning that was right, yeah. and all the stuff oh. that we improved on, and 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 oh. seeing sort of the DNA 
in terms of how we we run the business today and obviously mike was very crucial at the beginning because i had zero experience when we first started this project and i'm pretty sure they wouldn't have used me um or at least they, i would have been probably in a much more diminished diminished role if if uh, rohan my buddy had decided to hire me for this at the time with me having no experience and no you know no partner with any experience behind me but yeah i think it's a really good episode really good three-parter i uh, definitely think it's something that you want to reference for the future if you are going to be creating your own designs and if you like this kind of content if you want to see the show notes go to sourcefinasia.com slash made in china do you want to you know we've got a ton of episodes beyond this check out the youtube channel that's source fine asia on youtube and i will see you guys next week Style of the young black and genius Sun strapped with guns, packing jeans And the blunts got my lungs black and cheesy Played with killers, hung at a slung crack for leisure And tell a nigga run that, get gun clap for sneakers Young niggas emulate what's coming out the speakers So everything we learn came from rappers, not teachers Cause if we can't relate, then how the hell you gonna reach us? Surrounded by crooked cops and preachers Who am I trusting? No time to think about illegal when your stomach's touching By any means, nigga, even if the gun is busting I see the world from what it is now I see the odds is looking slim for our kids now Cause uh, it wasn't set up for my people to rise My niggas slain, but I see the pain deep in they eyes Niggas living like they don't give a fuck And I don't blame them, it's a cold world Live it up, damn